part two. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Your word is truth. It is uh, a light and a lamp uh, for our walk. Uh, It's a way that we know the truth about you and the truth about ourselves. Would you continue through your spirit to teach us, make what is yours, uh, ours? Would you conform us, please, again and again uh, into the image of our wonderful, amazing Savior, the Lord Jesus? We ask you to do that tonight uh, through your spirit and through your word as we study Job, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Job part two, unmerited suffering. We're still talking about that. Uh, I suggested to you last week that Job, like our, uh, some of our military women and men, sometimes God steps aside and calls on an ordinary saint to become his extraordinary spiritual champion on the battlefield. And if you got all the way through 37 or 38, or maybe you finished the book, some of you are overachievers, if you've already finished the book, yay, you begin to see how God stepped aside knowing what Job, how Job would answer, and he puts Job out there to answer on his behalf. In the prologue, we saw that the Satan has made two accusations as we opened up the book. First, Job only worships you, God, because of what he gets. That was proven false. Second, Job only worships because you protect his health. And God stepped aside and allowed Satan to afflict Job, and when we left Job, we left him on the garbage heap, um, not in any good way, he's in a bad way, and four friends had just assembled to comfort him, three of whom we hear from first, and then Elihu, the youngest, we hear from later. So God calls righteous Job on to the battlefield, the question of the book, will Job seek to maintain his righteousness and trust God, or will he confess, confess in quotes, for relief? Is God worthy, according to Job, of worship Okay, is God worthy of worship and Job's loyalty in spite of his circumstances? That's what the Satan is saying is not true. Job only worships you because of his circumstances. And God says, Job, come here. And he puts him out on the battlefield and he lets Satan afflict him to answer this question. Job's friends have heard about the tragedy and have come to comfort him. (laughs) Mm. Not a lot of comfort from his friends, if you got to read that far. 
His friends' counsel, so in plurality, his friends' counsel is all grounded in the retribution principle, or as I called it, the compensation theology from last time. The retribution principle is the righteous are blessed in this life while the wicked are punished. But you better watch out because you don't know what will set God off. So you'd better watch it. It's corollaries. If you're blessed, you must be righteous. If you're suffering, you must have sinned. Your circumstances reveal your heart. This is at the basis of the retribution principle or the theology of compensation, that your circumstances reveal your heart. And now as you sort of play back, I know it's hard, it's poetry, it's not even Western poetry, it's Eastern poetry, so it's really hard to understand. This is what Job's friends are counseling him from. This is their context. Job, your circumstances reveal your heart. That's where his friends are all going. Great friends. Uh, I suggested to you last time also um, that we embrace this same principle in theology today. And not that it's correct, but when you, remember I asked you, anyone, and I, no raising of hands, because I know some of you have your phones out, you'll take pictures and you have InstaFace or something, and the next thing we know is we'll be on InstaFace seeing ourselves. But you've said to yourself, the other shoe will drop. What is that? That is the retribution principle. You have sung the song that I sang to you oh so poorly uh, last week, the Santa Claus song. And you'd better watch out. Better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town, and Santa Claus is just God personified. He sees you, he sees you, he rewards, he punishes, he does all these things. Uh, it seems that in the Old Testament, this is also the modus operandi of all of the idols. You'd better do something to make them happy so it'll rain. And if you've done something wrong, they may whack you somehow, these local deities. So this theology, this principle is still with us in 2022. You'd say, this is ancient. We're in the modern times. Guess what? <laughs> same principle, same compensation theology running around today. Well, let's take a few minutes now and let's just look at, there's three rounds of debate. Three rounds, okay? I'm going to summarize them so that you can see how this argument is progressing. First, uh, round one, chapters three through 14. Job says, I don't understand. This is basically what he's saying through three through 14. He's grief-stricken. Now, is that wrong? Of course not. 
Grief is a natural first response when our world falls apart. Grief is not wrong. So Job is grief-stricken. Eliphaz, who seems to be the oldest, and therefore in that world the wisest, says, uh, hinting to Job in chapters 4 and 5, you need to confess, Job. Your circumstances reveal your heart, and you need to confess. Bildad, in chapter 8, jumps in and says, you need to repent. And Zophar also hints, you need to come clean. Eliphaz is speaking from the perspective of experience. Right? Remember when he said, we've learned this from generations before. And he, he keeps citing all of the uh, long historical traditions. So he's speaking from the point of experience. Bildad is speaking from the perspective of tradition. It's always been this way. This is how it is. Zophar speaks from the perspective of intuition. He's, he's always talking about how he, this intuition that he and everyone else like him has. The horrible thing is what the accuser has not been able to do with death and destruction he now begins to accomplish with the well-meaning but ignorant friends who accuse Job and discourage him. Job, you need to confess. Job, you need to repent. Job, it's time to come clean. The friends, Job, you're not righteous. You're a sinner in need of repentance. This is the friend's first round of comfort to Job. The accuser is at work using the friends. And yet, though Job doesn't understand... Job doesn't curse God as the Satan predicted and his wife recommended. He maintains his innocence and integrity. Though he receives no comfort from his friends and doesn't understand, he continues to cling to God in faith. Round one goes to God and his champion. Round two. Job says, I'm innocent and God is unfair. Job says, basically, I don't deserve this. Well, now the hints begin to turn into insinuations. And Eliphaz begins to insinuate that Job is a sinner. Bildad begins to insinuate that Job is a sinner. Zophar begins to insinuate, Job, you're a sinner. And this is happening to you because you've sinned. 
not because you're righteous. It's because you've sinned. So they're escalating. Their hints have now turned into insinuations. If you've ever uh, been through unmerited suffering, you can connect with Job when he says, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. But these friends say, Job, you're not innocent. You're guilty and should remember the terrible fate of the wicked. I'm looking for some new friends after round two. Now, Job begins to show signs of pride and self-righteousness by insisting on arguing his case in court against God. He believes, he's beginning to believe that God has, um, is picking on him. And he wants to basically meet God in court and argue his case. Now, he's fine if God says, no, you're guilty. He's fine, but he wants the chance to argue his case with God. Unfortunately, Job is now flirting with becoming God's new accuser. See what he begins to do? The Satan begins to, because of the friends, Job begins to almost start accusing God. And yet, though he receives no comfort from his friends and doesn't understand, he continues to cling to God in faith. Round two. Barely, but goes to God. Round three. Is this making sense to you after you've read all these, these back and forths? You're like, Oh, 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 this is horrible. Job is no better, right? Job is still, you know, doing his thing on the garbage heap. And there's descriptions in here. People don't recognize him, and now he's emaciated and all this kind of stuff. I don't, I don't know how long it would take me to become emaciated, probably a while. Point is, how long is Job on the garbage heap? I don't know. But it's not two or three days. It's long enough where he's becoming, he said his skin is beginning to get dark, and he's becoming emaciated. I mean, is that a month? I don't know. Don't think Job is just, he climbs up here for three days, and he scrapes away, and all this stuff happens, and he's done. Woohoo! He is on the garbage heap, really suffering. Round three, Job, I deserve to be acquitted. Now Eliphaz really ramps it up. He's moved from hints to insinuations to accusations. He begins to accuse Job of where he's wrong. Bildad accuses Job of where he's wrong and how he's missed the point. Job, you're suffering. Ergo, 
your heart is wrong and bad. Zophar, the third, Zophar seems to have dropped out. (laughs) He cannot persuade Job of anything, and so he just, "Mm, I'm done. I don't have any more encouragement to give. In round three, Job denies his friend's premise, their assertion that the wicked always suffer and that he was a deliberate sinner. He is challenging the retribution principle as always being the way in which God deals with men. He's challenging it. They have embraced it. That is their context. Bad things are happening to you, you must have sinned. When good things were happening to you, you must have pleased God because you were obeying. Job begins to argue, (laughs) wait a minute. You say the wicked are always hounded and, and they always in this life. Not true. Not true. And I would suggest to you in 2022, you would say the same thing. You know wicked people who have not suffered. No no names. (laughs) Stop. You know this to be true. Job is saying, this is what's true. The friends are going, nah, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. The wicked always get their comeuppance in this life. Job says, nope, (laughs) not true. So this is what's going, this is the book of Job. They're arguing basically over philosophy. It's masterful how this book is put together. So Job is denying his friend's premise. Their assertion that the wicked always suffer because he is righteous, Job says. Who else says Job is righteous? God in chapter 1 and 2. Have you known as my servant Job? No one is more righteous than Job. God says Job is righteous. Don't forget that. Job is righteous, and yet he's suffering. He's suffering like a wicked person in the friend's mind should be suffering. This makes no sense. If you're old enough to remember Lost in Space, remember the robot? That does not compute. This does not compute for the friends because the righteous always are blessed and the wicked always suffer. It's not true. Job knows it's not true because it's him. (laughs) You and I know it's true close to 4,000 years later. And now, Job, showing even more pride and self-righteousness, insists that God is unjust for targeting and bullying him this way. Remember, they're debating why Job is suffering. Here's what the friends are saying. Love it. We're going to pull out the whiteboard. Okay, I don't know. Hopefully you can see that. There's Job, and there's three three people groups who are going at him. 
Uh, let's see. The friends say, Job, this is for your discipline. Job says, no, this is for my destruction. And Elihu says, Elihu's going to speak next. Elihu says, you guys, this, this is not for discipline. Job, you're wrong. God is not trying to destroy you. Elihu says, God is giving you direction. You're about to wander off the path, or you've even started wandering off the path. God is coming in and helping to direct you back to the path. This is, this is what's going on in these friend groups. Is it, is it discipline? Is it destruction? Or is it direction? Elihu is now going to speak. He's been quiet, but he's a little upset now. He's waited for the, uh, for the elderly wise men to put Job in his place. They haven't been able to do that. And so Elihu says, it's my turn. And yet... Though Job receives no comfort from his friends and doesn't understand, he continues to cling to God in faith, nor does he curse God as the Satan predicted and his wife recommended. But here comes Elihu. Elihu says, Job, you say God is silent. That's chapter 32 and 33. And Elihu says, no, God speaks. Job, you say God is unjust. No, God is just. Job, you say God is unconcerned. Elihu says, no, God is sovereign. Elihu makes an argument that God is just and he is sovereign. Elihu is speaking, he's speaking to Job as a teacher would speak to a student. Job, here's where you're in error and God is directing you back onto the path. He's not silent. He does speak, and he's speaking to you. He's not unjust, as Job has begun to hint at God. He's not unconcerned, Job. He's just absolutely sovereign, and he does what he wills, when he wills, all the time. So Elihu speaks the truth is, none of them know why this is happening. None of them. The three friends, <laughs> and then younger Elihu, and Job, no one knows what's really going on. 
But they look at someone's circumstances, they deduce the condition of their heart, and they uh, pass judgment, if you will, on that person. But the truth is, they don't know why this is happening to Job. It's unknown to Job and his friends that the Satan has made two accusations against God. Job only worships you because he gets stuff, and Job only worships because you protect his health. So God has called on Job to enter the battlefield as his spiritual champion. Job is demanding his day in court with God, and the audience is awaiting the outcome. Because if you've looked ahead or read ahead, Elihu was talking about a, a storm, it seems. Chapter 38, God shows up. 38 through 42, at least through almost through the end of the book, uh, God has a few words for Job and for the friends. And that's what we'll talk about a week from now. We will talk about when God shows up and sets things straight. No one knows what's going on behind that curtain that separates this life from the next. So I've made a few observations for us tonight uh, on the second part of Job. First observation, very simple. Offering compassion and comfort are better than offering counsel to those who are suffering. Now, there will come a time when they're ready to receive counseling. But at first, offer compassion and comfort. Um, the other thing to not do is, is don't play the one-up game. You know what the one-up game is? Oh, you think that's bad? Let me tell you what happened to me. <laughs> we almost can't help but do that. Oh, yeah, I know. Gosh, you got run over by a bus 14 times. That's a mess. <laughs> what a mess. You know what happened to me? <laughs> I got run over by an airplane 15 times. <laughs> Woo, boy, did that hurt. I know exactly how you're feeling. <laughs> Sometimes that's kind of our default because we don't know what else to say. Don't, don't do that. That's not helpful. Uh, the best thing those guys did <laughs> was sit there for a week and just cry with him and be with him and, and listen to him, not offer counsel. There'll come a time when Job is ready for that or the person in your life is ready for that or if it's you. Don't start there. Offering compassion and comfort are better than offering counsel to those who are suffering in the beginning. Observation number two, trying to discover why the righteous suffer is futile. We do not know. We may not have the full picture of what's happening behind the curtain. We just don't know. 
So trying to discover why. Remember we talked about that last week. What's the first thing I want to know? If I've started, if I'm having, I'm in the midst of unmerited suffering, what do I want to know? Why? Why? Why is this happening? Usually what do we mean by that? Same thing Job did. I don't deserve this. Well, why not? And you can fill in the blank. I don't deserve this. You may not. That's why it's called unmerited suffering. To suggest that it's unmerited is, seems like something that you, if you could have avoided it, you would have. So trying to discover why the righteous suffer is futile. In my experience, and I'm speaking like one of the friends, why just leads to more why. Why did that happen? Well, here's why it happened. Well, why did that? It's like I could be satisfied with an explanation for my suffering. I usually can't. So trying to discover the why the righteous suffer is futile. Here's what's safe but insufficient. The retribution principle is definitely descriptive. God does delight in prospering the righteous, and he does guarantee the wicked will be punished. He promises that over and over and over In my opinion, one of the greatest arguments for an afterlife is this. Because God says the wicked will be punished. If they weren't punished on this side, then there has to be something coming where they will be. Conversely, the righteous. Think about it. This is a great argument for a next life. If you're talking with someone over Thanksgiving, no, don't do it over Thanksgiving. (laughs) Yeah, don't do that. (laughs) But when you think about it, um, most people will agree, at least they'll begin by agreeing, that God is just. Is God just? Oh, yeah, he's just. I mean, if there is a God, he would be just. Gotcha. So does he punish all wickedness and reward all righteousness? Sure, guess so. Haven't seen that happen yet, though. Right. What do you think about that? How could those two things be true? Well, I don't know. Well, maybe something else is after this life. Hmm. You just just get people thinking. Let them stew on that for a while. The retribution principle is descriptive. God does delight in prospering the righteous. He does guarantee the wicked will be punished. But the retribution principle is not causative. It cannot be used to demand blessing from God, and it cannot be used to deduce a person's heart. Pick a wicked person and say, "Mm, they're getting just what they deserved. Wow, do you know that? Do you know all things? You know that? That's what Job's friends were doing.
Now, what about, we aren't there yet, what about God's law, the Mosaic law? God says, obey this and you'll be blessed and disobey this and, you know, I'm going to discipline you. Then it is causative because he said so right there. But as a general principle of life, it is not always causative. And therefore, there must be a better way for God to deal, the, to be, uh, the better way can be described for God to deal with man. And that's what the book of Job is trying to communicate to us. God deals with men according to his sovereign wisdom and sovereign grace. Grace is unmerited favor, not unmerited suffering. What does Job say in chapter 1? Job, Job is good. <laughs> He's lost everything. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. You want to know what Job's... Why is... What's going on here? You can't look at Job's circumstances and say, cause and effect. Job lost everything because he's a wicked sinner. No, he's righteous. What does he do when he loses everything? He continues to worship in, in, in truth. How does God deal with men? In grace. Job realizes that. God's given me everything I have. God takes it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a hard thing to say. I don't know that I could say that. That's how amazing Job is. Lose everything. I'm not talking about most things. Lose everything you have. What's your first thought? Yeah, I don't deserve this. That's my first thought. <laughs> I've lost everything. Would I fall on the ground and say, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return to God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is an amazing person. <laughs> what faith Job has in God. The retribution principle, I continue to argue, is not causative. Grace is how God deals with mankind. Remember what Jesus says? Uh, gosh, is it Sermon on the Mount? Remember when he's talking about his reign? Doesn't my Father cause the rain to fall on both the righteous and the wicked? How, if God were causative, it would rain on one house, <laughs> and it, would be, it wouldn't rain on other houses. That would be causative. That's not how God operates. He operates in grace. The book of, the Job, the book of Job is arguing that God deals with mankind fundamentally in grace. He always has. That's why when Jesus shows up, he says, I only do what I learned from my father. Well, no, 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 because that God in the Old Testament's really mean. <laughs> yeah, maybe he isn't. <laughs> maybe he's always treated men in grace. And Jesus says, I'm just doing everything I saw my father do. I'm just putting flesh on it. 
The retribution principle is descriptive, but it is not causative. However, remember, this is because God is sovereign. It is sovereign grace, meaning uh, it's his unmerited favor, so I cannot demand it. I can't demand more grace. And I can't be angry if he decides to be more gracious to someone else than he is to me right at the time. Because it's grace. Remember the guy's standing in line and they're working and one guy works all day and he walks away with his coin. And then the guy shows up at the last hour and he walks away with the same coin. And how does Jesus respond to that guy? The guy goes, why is that fair? It's my money, it's my field, I can do with it as I choose. Have I been unfair to you? You agreed to work for this denarius? You worked, you got your denarius. This other guy agreed to the same terms. He worked one hour, he got a denarius. What? God deals with mankind in grace, always. The retribution principle is insufficient to explain what we can, let alone can't, see. I cannot look at a person, maybe he's just down on his luck, so to speak. And if I go, yep, he's getting what he deserves. I've just taken somebody else's throne. (laughs) I've kind of climbed into it and pronounced judgment as if I know all things, which I don't. (laughs) I don't even know what I see, let alone what I don't see. The retribution principle is insufficient to explain what we can, let alone can't see. How do I know this? Because the righteous experience unmerited suffering, starting with Job. The righteous do experience unmerited suffering. You know it, and so do I. If the retribution principle is how God deals with mankind, then if you're in the midst of unmerited suffering, you deserve it. And do you know what that's called? It can be called Hinduism. Karma. I've had the pleasure of visiting India. They struggle to help people. Why? Because you're messing it up. And if I help you, I may wreck myself and I may wreck you from the lesson you're supposed to be learning. So it's better off that I just don't help you because the retribution principle is causative. And it will cause me to circle back around and if I didn't do so well as a person, maybe I'll do better as a bug. And maybe the bug will become a donkey or something if I go around and around and around. That's where this retribution principle as causative can go. The righteous do experience unmerited suffering. Why? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Well, didn't you go to seminary for a long time and you still can't tell me why? I went to seminary for a long time and I still can't tell you why. (laughs) I don't know. I am not God. I do not know the plans he has for you. 
I don't know how you learn. I don't know what he intends to take you through in, because of what he wants to do with you. I know God is good, and he's good all the time. And I know God is just, and I know God is, always deals with us in his sovereign grace. Other than that, I begin to know very little. <laughs> I do know the righteous experience unmerited suffering. I also know that there is pain involved in unmerited suffering. The pain of unmerited suffering you or I might be persecuted for righteousness' sake. We might be the victim of sinful attitudes and actions of others. Uh, we might be caught up in circumstances beyond our control. Um, many times it seems to carry a sense of unfairness. But God knows what He's doing. And he knows what he's doing all the time. Can we explain it? We cannot. There is unmerited suffering. And there's the stress and pain of suffering. James 1, James talks about enduring trials and hardships. Why? Because they help us grow. Remember that? I know that's in the New Testament, but you can turn there. Turn to James, chapter 1. The New Living Translation reads this way, just first few verses of James, chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. That's pretty much my default. Is it yours? It's interesting when he talks about these trials, uh, the, word, the, the words he uses describe a boat, a ship, running aground on a hidden reef. What does that suggest about these trials? You didn't see them coming, because if you would have seen them coming, you would have steered around it. You didn't see it coming. <laughs> Your ship has now run aground on a hidden reef. And he says, it's an opportunity for great joy. <laughs> Yoo-hoo! <laughs> for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If you need wisdom, ask God and He'll give it to you. And He won't rebuke you for asking. And He goes on and He talks about how we should handle these kinds of things. Chapter 5, He talks about persecution. Uh, let's see... Beginning in verse uh, oh, 07, dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be, oh, what's that word? Oh, 
Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. And he gives a couple of examples of patience in the midst of persecution. The stress and pain of suffering can lead to sickness and stress of heart and soul. And it can leave a believer weary, discouraged, and doubting. If you know somebody like this, go back to observation one. Offer compassion and comfort rather than counsel to that person. Observation four, those who trust God most don't avoid suffering, but embrace it. (laughs) What? (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) Um, Our boys, Stephen is a huge vegetable eater. Uh, He's the oldest. Josiah, uh, younger, uh, didn't really care for things with um, color like green or yellow or anything. Uh, And so they both had to take, let's say we had, um, oh, I don't know, uh, lima beans. I like lima beans. Some people don't care for lima beans. But they had to take a no thank you helping. (laughs) No thank you, I don't want those lima beans. Great, so take three and put them on your plate and eat them. You have to take a no thank you helping. Because if you go over to somebody's house, you don't get to say, So you have to take a a no thank you helping. Those who trust God most don't avoid suffering, but they eat the lima beans. (laughs) They embrace the lima beans. (laughs) I I like lima beans too, but some people I hear don't. What is the believer's response in times like this. Peter tells us, if you're in James, you just have to go over to the right a little bit, go to chapter 4, verse 12. I think we might have touched on this one last week. Peter writes this. By the way, if you didn't hear the sermon this morning, uh, please listen to it. It was outstanding. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going... What kind of trials? Probably pretty easy to get through. Fiery? Probably not. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> Wait, what is he saying isn't the cause, the retribution principle. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Wait, fiery trials are for wicked people. Yeah, and for Christians. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in His suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing His glory when it is revealed to all the world. So be happy when you're insulted for being a Christian, for then the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. 
If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by His name. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news. And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right, and trust your lives to the God who created you, for He will never fail you. Unmerited suffering shouldn't catch us by surprise. Keep on doing what's right in faith and endure it. James, we looked at a few already, counted all joy, patiently endure it. Prayer, chapter 5 of James, prayer, we need help bearing the burden. Don't be a good American and try to walk unmerited suffering alone. Right? You understand? Don't be a good American. Who's a good American? John Wayne. Did John Wayne need anyone? No. He needed that gun that he could... And he just did it all by himself. And that's like the romantic American ideal. By myself. Self-reliance. Independence. Be a good American. Being a good American and being a good Christian might not be the same thing. We need each other. We have to bear each other's burdens in prayer. Endure with prayer resulting in worship, knowing it glorifies God and grows His saint. Okay, I got a couple minutes. One more. This is always a good one to look at. How did Jesus handle? Did Jesus experience unmerited suffering? Go ahead and say yes. That's the right answer. Jesus' response to suffering. You know it, Matthew 26. Got to go back to the left a little bit. Remember, New Testament, Matthew, Mark. Don't, don't go to Mark. If you find Mark, go back to the left, Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Let's see, 36. Jesus goes to Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. He said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Gethsemane was an olive press, and so when you go to uh, Israel, when, not if, when you go to Israel, you will see an olive press, and you'll understand there's a big stick, and it crunches the olives, squeezes, squeezes the juice out. That's what Jesus is saying here. My soul is crushed to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. 
Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, go ahead and sleep, have your rest, but look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Jesus draws near to, doesn't withdraw from, his Father in prayer. What is Jesus' first thought? Prayer. He surrenders again to his Father's will. Why would I say again? It's no mystery to Jesus that he came to die. He's just making sure. If there's no other way to do this, I'll do it. I know that's why I came. Can you imagine praying that? He's an amazing Savior. He surrenders again to his Father's will, trusting that he is good and knows best. He rises up and goes forth toward the future in faith and courage as a weapon against the Satan and as a witness to men and angels alike. No one who has walked the face of the earth has been more righteous than the Lord Jesus. No one has gone through unmerited suffering equal to his either. God deals with men fundamentally based on his sovereign grace, not based on the retribution principle, but in sovereign grace. And no greater example of that exists than the Lord Jesus. In two weeks, we will see, as Paul Harvey would have said, the rest of the story. Read Job 38 to 42. Two weeks from tonight, we will finish the book of Job. And if you, for some reason, didn't get quite through all those middle chapters, uh, you've got two weeks now. Go ahead, finish it off. If you've never read the book of Job, you've got to be able to say, I read the book of Job. I read it all. (laughs) Do it. You can do it. I know you can. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the example of Job and the far, far greater example of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Thank you for such a great Savior uh, who did for me and who did for my brothers and sisters what we could never have done for ourselves. Uh, Thank you for his righteousness and thank you for his unmerited suffering and how that uh, encourages me, how that instructs me, um, and how it calls me to greater faith um, than maybe I even have tonight. We love you, we thank you, and we walk forward uh, with faith and courage, knowing you're a good, good God, and good all the time, and want nothing but what's best for us. You know what's best. We love you, we put our lives into your hands, our futures as well, and pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.